Welcome back to Spotlight 19, episode 25. Coming to you from noisy New York City, or my part at least. We want to wish a very happy birthday to our friends, New York 19 Votes. One year ago, they had their first district-wide canvas. You can get involved with New York 19 Votes by going to ny19votes.com and find out more about their organization by listening back to episode 14 with Dustin Reedy. Well, there's a lot to get to before we get to Dave Clegg's Tiny Town Hall. Our fourth one. Uh, First up, Callie Jane, a black female activist formerly with Citizens Action of Hudson Valley and now launching her own nonprofit, Rise Up Kingston, has been targeted by the private management company and building owner of John Fazzo's office in Kingston, where Fazzo Fridays happen. Callie was at Fazzo's office on March 5th, along with a number of other protesters, mainly protesters of color, demanding a Clean Dream Act and protesting for darker recipients. Then she received a criminal summons for trespassing, which was apparently filed by 721 Management. 721 issued a statement quoting Martin Luther King and claiming that Callie posed some sort of liability issue because she was in the parking lot, which seems quite disingenuous since the photographs on that day show many people at the protest who were not similarly charged. Callie now joins the FASO 9 in being targeted for protesting at FASO's office although the FASO 9 were actually in FASO's Kinderhook office, whereas Callie was outside. So, <laughs> Callie's court date is on March 20th in Kingston, and we are trying to pack the court on her behalf. More details are available at nyspotline19.com about this action. Next. This week, we had National School Walkout Wednesday on the one-month anniversary of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School mass shooting. Students around the country and our district walked out at 10 a.m. on March 14th for 17 minutes to honor the victims of the shooting. Some area schools permitted this action of peaceful protest while other students were met with punishment. At Kingston High School, students were suspended who participated. A scholarship fund has been set up for these students by Ashley Dittus. You can find out more about that at our website as well. That's nyspotlight19.com. Fazzo's statement on the walkout was as follows. Participation of our young people in public issues, such as school safety in the light of the Florida shooting, is very important and should be encouraged. However, I don't think that it is advisable to leave class to express these opinions, as this will cause the loss of valuable academic time for our students. Better to participate in such activities after school or on weekends. We shall see if Fazel will be at the March of Our Lives then which is on March 24th on the walkway over the Hudson in Poughkeepsie. Spotlight 19 and many of our primary candidates will also be there. On to some FASA votes. First up, a bill that seems like it's helping but actually is probably hurting consumers 
The Comprehensive Regulatory Review Act would require reviews of financial regulations more often and require removal of anything that was too burdensome on businesses. H.R. 4607 will result in three more employees for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but these employees will be trying to deregulate corporations instead of helping consumers. Faso, of course, voted in favor of this, as he did many of the bills that have ultimately become the bill that just passed in the Senate that undoes much of the protection put in place by Dodd-Frank. Next, a good and bad vote for the environment. Number one, Faso voted to delay emission standards for brick manufacturers and new home heating devices. The industries should have already adapted to these changes. It's not like global warming is slowing down for these corporations. 2. Faso voted against a bill that lessens emission standards for facilities that burn coal waste. Of course, the bill passed anyway, and it's likely that Faso got it passed. He probably is sick of us bringing up the time he voted to allow more coal waste in streams. So Faso apparently cared about coal waste in the air, but not in our waterways. And last... On the day of the walkout, Faso voted in favor of the Stop School Violence Act, which just reauthorizes a Secure Our Schools grant program that was in place before that provides money to train law enforcement and school personnel, developing reporting tools for threats, metal detectors in schools, and more security. The bill passed almost unanimously, but it does little to actually stop gun violence And as we've been talking about, Faso continues to be incredibly weak on his position on guns. Number one. In 1995, Faso voted against increasing the minimum wage from $4.25 to $5.05. Number two. Also in 95, Faso authorized a budget that cuts millions of dollars from funding for New York's Environmental Protection Fund. I wonder if some of the upstate water crisis in Newburgh and Hooksill Falls could have been prevented. Number three. Speaking of which, also in that 1995 budget written by Faso, it eliminates funding for water pollution control emissions. Number four. His budget also cut nearly $5 million from higher education, like funding for SUNY and CUNY to fund a tax cut. Students at those schools saw a $250 tuition hike that year. He really despised students that year. No raise to the minimum wage jobs they might have been working and an increase in tuition. Number five. His budget also cut $6.5 million from drug treatment and substance abuse programs. So when you hear any talk of how Faso is committed to battling the opioid crisis, keep in mind that he has not always been a friend of the rehabilitation programs. And last, we have a new Democratic candidate who announced her run. Ellen Collier, originally from Cooperstown, will be running against our six already announced candidates. Spotlight 19 will be having Aaron on the show in two weeks, and we hope that you stay tuned to learn more about Aaron. Moving on now to our Tiny Town Hall series featuring Democratic Congressional Candidate Dave Clegg. That will be followed by Sarge's one-on-one interview with Dave coming up. 
Hi, I'm Matreya, and I live in Rosendale. I'm 12 years old, and I'm in sixth grade at High Meadows School. I have a video blog called I, as an eye in your face, ionpolitics.net. So, how are you actually going to get safe gun laws passed? Aside from the fact that they need to get passed, how are we going to get back past the parties and get them passed? That's an excellent question, Matreya. It is uh, your generation and uh, the kids in school right now that are inspiring us to do that. We need to step up. Congress is beholden to the NRA, obviously. The Congress that we have right now isn't stopping gun violence. It's, it's actually allowing the spread of gun violence by doing nothing. So we need to step up, and parties need to step up. One of those things we could talk about is obviously not taking any money from gun manufacturers or the NRA to fund our campaigns. That would be a good starting place. I believe that both Democrats and Republicans now think this is the moment. Not all Republicans, but there was a Republican named Brian Mast, who's a congressman from Florida, and he was an Iraq war veteran, and he lost both his legs while he was on tour. Now, he came out and he said there should be a ban on the AR-15. That is a killing machine. And even he, who is a Republican in Florida, which is an NRA state, says we should ban it. So all of us should stand together and have the courage of our convictions. And we should say no to gun violence. And we should say no to the AR-15s. And we should study gun violence. And we should take away the immunity that the gun manufacturers have. And we should take away the bump stop. The bump stocks are things that you can use to make semi-automatic into automatic guns. And that shouldn't be allowed. So we must stop those things. We must make our community safer and the kids safer by doing that. Thank you. Sure. And also, how do you think you can beat Faso? I think I can beat John Faso because I'm his polar opposite. I've been in this community doing good work and working with young men and women for the last 36 years. I've done a lot of work in the area of civil rights and also in human rights. So I've given back to the community in ways that, that the community will know that I care about them, that I'm dedicated to making our community a better place. I'm your neighbor, and I'm neighbors to everybody in this district. And I think we can see each other in a different way if we just talk about what we have in common, all our common interests. How do we make our, our neighborhoods better? How do we make our families safer? How do we make the jobs that we have better and higher paying? All those things are things we share together. And if we talk about it, we can join in together. John Faso, I'm afraid, mostly pays attention to the rich and, and the big corporations. Uh, he takes a lot of money from hedge fund managers and corporate donors and people like the Koch brothers who are trying to promote the fossil fuel industry. So we have to stop that. We have to, we have to change that because it's not good for our community. It's not good for our environment. And it's not good for education or, or uplifting the people that we have in our neighborhood. Thank you. You're welcome. My name is Joel. I'm from the New Paltz area. First of all, I want to thank you and I honor you for your decades of service to this community. Uh, I thank you question, for that. You're welcome. Very simple. Um, I realize that something has to be done about the AR because of the recent Parkland shooting and all the other ones that went before it. And, and the NRA has steadfastly refused to compromise on anything. 
But there's been people on social media that we know that have been screaming about repealing the Second Amendment. And I just don't think that's someplace we ever really ought to go. And what's your opinion of that? I also agree we should not go there. It's, it's one, not possible. Uh, to, to do a constitutional amendment to change a Second Amendment would tear our country apart. Uh, it wouldn't be successful. And I think that that kind of talk actually adds to the problem. Uh, right now, we need both sides to think together. Let's think cooperatively. I know a lot of gun owners and a lot of hunters, and they care about stopping gun violence. So let's not go so far that we lose people of goodwill. We want to keep the community together on that issue. And I think together, if we listen, if we, if we can reach common ground and then higher ground, we can find a way to stop gun violence, to stop people who should not have automatic or semi-automatic weapons that are killing machines, and we can do it in a way that protects the interests of gun owners at the same time, respecting the rural community and their approach and culture to guns. We can do both of those things, and we should work on doing that. Thank you. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you, John. Hi, Dave. It's Marlene from New Paltz. Hi, Marlene. Hi. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. Thank you. Okay, so I, you know I'm very um, pro-affordable housing and that I myself live in a modular home and on rented property, and it's, um, every year the rents go up. We recently joined a, a movement up here, Manufactured Homes Action, and w- what they're looking at is to have corporations stop buying up the mobile home parks. So that's been going on. The corporation comes, they buy up the mobile home park, and they raise the lot rents $150 to $200 a month. That means all the people that are in there, a lot of them seniors, now have no place to go to and no place to live. So I'd like to know how, in which way would you be able to help this population of people living on rented land in their own home? How, you know, what do you think we could do about this as far as affordable housing? Well, affordable housing, especially for seniors, is a really important issue. And I've heard about that predatory kind of conduct. Not only corporations, but hedge fund managers are buying up these trailer parks so that they, they have a, a, a confined space that they can charge people whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And it's wrong. And so we should look for legislation that would prevent that. We should protect people from that kind of predatory conduct. There are things that that HUD can do. You know, we do provide senior housing and we do provide stipends for people with low income so they get affordable housing. So those are things that HUD could do better. You know, housing and urban development right now is not doing its job. Ben Carson is, is not somebody who even cares about the mission of housing and urban development. He's someone who said that self-reliance is the only thing people need. Well, that's not recognizing the situation that most people find themselves in, especially on, on fixed incomes at a later stage in life. We need to do better than that. We need to protect people. HUD could be part of the answer. Supervise and incentivize things that, that could help support the income costs that you have, the, the rental costs would be helpful. And all of a sudden, legislation that would protect you from predatory conduct, whether it be a corporation or a hedge fund, would be a good thing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hi, my name is Doug. I'm a homeowner in Rosendale. And I have two questions for you, actually. My first question is, I've gotten a sense so far today what your general philosophy is about some of these really important issues. I'm wondering if you have any specific plans, any bills in mind that you, from day one, you know, you're already preparing. Do you have a plan? 
There are, there are bills in place right now that I support. One of them is the Fair Elections Act. That's a Campaign Finance Reform Act. And what that would do would be to provide matching grants for small donations for people who want to run for Congress. In addition to that, and what I think is really important, is that it would provide media access because the licenses we give out to our media are licenses that are supposed to have a give back. A give back is supposed to be public interest opportunities to use the media. Now, you take any campaign and 70 to 80% of the cost of the campaign goes to media. So if we could take away 70% of the cost of running a campaign, it could open the doors to people with not a lot of means, but a lot of heart running for office. It would also take all the money out of our elections. What is ruining our government? What is ruining Congress? It's the money they need to run these campaigns. And they become beholden to places like the NRA and corporations. And when they do a tax bill, who do they favor? They say they favor the corporations, they favor the rich. If we could do a bill like that, it would change government <clears throat> and it would give us a chance to have a real democracy. That's great because the people who are in the position to pass a bill like that have already benefited from, you know, the old way. So they're not really, there's no incentive for them to pass a bill like that. You know, but, I, was, I was just talking to uh, Steve Israel, who was in Congress and left because, and I think partly at least, because of the need to continue to fundraise. And we were talking about campaign finance reform. And what he said was it's like an insurance policy for incumbents. That incumbents use it because they've already established their wealthy donor class. And they can continue to use that and stay in power and keep the position and authority they have. What you need in Congress is somebody who's willing to be self-sacrificial. Somebody will go in and promise the people that he serves or she serves that I'm going to do the right thing. And I will tell you that I will do the right thing. I will vote for campaign finance reform and I will push for that. Is there anything else besides campaign finance reform that you're championing and you, you, that there's a bill that you know exists or that you would you'd be passion project for you? Yeah. One of the things that I'm so disappointed about from the Republican promises of a trillion dollars for infrastructure is that infrastructure, I think, is supported by 70 to 80 percent of the population of this country. And yet it's been taken away. It's been taken away because of the, the poor or whatever you want to say, the, the terrible tax bill that they just passed. They gave a trillion dollars that could have been put toward infrastructure and took it away and gave it to wealthy corporations. Now, that was a bad decision on their part, and now it's constrained us. There's a Move America Act that Sean Patrick Maloney is sponsoring along with other congressmen, and what it would do would be to start to, to provide funding for doing infrastructure. I'd even ask for more than that. I would go back to, let's do a trillion-dollar bill. Let's do a trillion dollars of infrastructure. You could use it for roads. You could use it for bridges that are broken down, but you could also use it for broadband. And you could take money from other tax deductions that we give to the fossil fuel industry, like the oil depletion allowance, take that back and put it into clean energy. And that will, once again, that will change our community. Let's get involved in, in, in a clean energy transfer. Let's make sure that we're doing clean energy, green jobs, which are higher paying and produce more jobs than anything in the fossil fuel industry. Let's head to the 21st century with broadband throughout our district. That, once again, will offer business opportunities, educational opportunities throughout our district. All those things are worth investing in. We need to get back to investing in people 
and not giving money away to corporations. Thanks. My second question is, uh, this district that you're running for is a microcosm for this country. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of support for Bernie Sanders, um, and yet uh, it also uh, went to Trump. So my question to you is, how do you uh, work as how how will you be successful representing a community that has, you know, very conservative people and very progressive people? My background, as you know, is giving a lot of back to the community, doing a lot of things that, that help uplift. But I'm not somebody who's been taking money from the federal government to do that. So everybody, whether you're Republican or independent or Democrat, liberal, conservative, you believe in, in giving somebody a hand up. You believe in, in helping to, uh, to do Habitat for Humanity in the community. You believe in providing kids after-school programs. You believe in, in giving the kids an opportunity to get a fair education and a good education. And for job training, all those issues cross all the divides, in my opinion. What we need to do is basically, I wouldn't say a populist position, it's a community position. We want to reach them because what we're proposing, the, the kinds of legislation and the kind of funding that we're talking about, is going to make the lives of every family in this community better. It's going to give them better wages, better health care, better security, and, and better training for better jobs in the future, and creating a, an environment, an economy where small businesses can flourish, where farms are, are supported properly, all sm our, our family farms and our and our small farms need to be subsidized, just like the agribusiness, but in a way that targets their needs, not throwing 95% of federal subsidies into the, uh, into the agribusiness world. So all these things are things that we can do better. And, and if they can understand, then I believe they can. And if we can talk and we can dialogue for just a few minutes, we'll get to once again, we'll find that common ground and we'll reach higher ground. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here for a second time and, you know, hearing from all of our great Tiny Town Hall participants today. Thank you, Sarah. It is my great pleasure to be back. And I know since we last spoke in October for the podcast, you've probably logged uh, how many miles would you say? I'd say 15,000 miles. So I think the mechanics here in New York 19 are getting a lot of work from, from the <laughs> six of you and your respective teams, for yes. sure. So you're creating some jobs already. <laughs> um, I have one question, and this is sent from Melissa, who was supposed to be here, and she's actually from Kingston and grew up here. Um, and she's asking, while, while you've been involved in the community for decades, and I think that's beyond question at this point, the issues that you're going to be facing in Washington are actually going to be different from your day-to-day -day work in social justice and as a plaintiff's attorney. So we need here in New York 19 somebody who knows how laws in Washington are actually passed to make sure something actually gets done. And it's often very tricky to navigate as well. There are relationships that are in place. Uh, you're being constantly kind of hounded by the press as well. So what... Uh, 
how are you going to be making policy decisions once or if you actually do, in fact, get to D.C.? And who is on your team advising you on uh, what it will be like to actually navigate Washington? I've been fortunate to have discussions with a number of congressmen, starting with Paul Tonko and Matt Cartwright. He's out of Pennsylvania. And I was just talking, as I mentioned earlier, with, with Steve Israel uh, just two days ago. So I've been talking to congressmen about what it takes to be a successful person in Congress and how you navigate those, those roads that have to be traveled. Uh, building relationships, obviously, is a start. Uh, as an attorney, I've, I've worked uh, in doing that with other professionals for my whole career. Uh, part of what we do is try and mediate, try and arbitrate, try and come to agreements, draw up contracts. Uh, all those things are similar, similar to the negotiations that will take place when you're trying to draft legislation and cooperate with, with other congressmen to get the job done. I've, I have done legislation, by the way. I don't know if you know about this, but I was asked by Kevin Ronk, who is the head of the, the county legislature, a Republican, to draft legislation for a human rights law here in Ulster County. And I was on a task force to do that and, and work together well, I think, between Republicans and Democrats. And we got the job done. And it's been drafted, and I think, I think it will pass. So that kind of experience is something that I have and something that I would bring to Congress. Sure. And uh, how do you convince people that are maybe not as familiar with the legislative process that they're uh, your experience with crafting state legis legislation for New York State and kind of at the more municipal or county level will translate to uh, your ability to craft federal legislation? Well, I will tell you that lawyers are actually good at doing crafting for legislation. That's, that's who does it. Uh, I've interpreted laws uh, my whole career. Obviously, that's part of what we do as a lawyer. And so drafting laws... That, that use the right language, that, that do what you want it to do, that accomplish everything, as well as reading all the, the fine print and reading all the additions that people want to add to a piece of legislation and making sure that it consistently gives you the result that you want. All those things are, are skills that I've, I've developed over many years of being an attorney. Uh, the legislative process is obviously a combination I remember reading Al Franken's book where he said he wanted to draft his legislation, and they said, you don't do it. You give us the idea, we draft it, and it comes back to you, and you can make changes or, or make some contribution. But sure, it is, it is a collective experience when you draw up legislation. I would certainly be able to add to the mix of that. So in addition to actually drawing up legislation, something else that goes on in Washington is kind of this compromise and trading of votes, which you actually alluded to in our last interview, that there's a caucus and sometimes they give people a buy and let them vote for something. So uh, my question's kind of two-pronged. How would you make sure that you always stick to your convictions? And well, what would you do, what would you actually do in a scenario where you you for example have championed the Medicare for all bill? That's yes. something you're willing to vote for on day one. But if there comes a situation where they're allowing Medicare for all to go to a vote while also tacking on in that same bill uh, something like a border wall or something like uh, increased, you know, border security or something. How will you navigate that? You would have to know all the nuances of that decision, right? So they just they just passed a law, as you know, in Florida. 
uh, a law that that uh, that gave some and, and took some away. Right. All of a sudden, we're going to have guns in schools, uh, officers in schools, teachers that might be carrying guns, etc. At the same time, they're raising the age and they're putting some restrictions on guns that are favorable. So the legislators down there had to make a decision whether I would have voted for that or not. You know, it's a question of pushing for as much as you can to accomplish as much as you can. On some things, you have to hold the line. On some things, you say, I can't go there. But without a specific legislation, all I would say is I would only vote for something that I thought was in the best interest of our community, something that would move us forward, something that would be good for the collective. And if it wasn't, if it had a more deleterious effect and was favoring some special interest, I would say no. So going back to my specific example, if something like a border wall were tucked into Medicare for all, which would obviously be very good for our community, and the border wall, and honestly, immigration as a whole is sometimes, obviously, the farms and a lot of uh, small businesses do depend on uh, immigrant labor, but it doesn't maybe touch us as much as a border community, obviously. Right. So how will you... uh, if, kind of balance that. Let, let me tell you, I would say that if we could get Medicare for all, I would live with a wall, I believe, because that would be so important for our country. I think a wall is horrible. I think it's a horrible symbol. It reminds me of the Berlin Wall. It's unnecessary. It won't serve the purpose to which it's being built. But if that could get Medicare for all, I'd give it serious thought, Yes. Sure. And I, I hate to throw these kind of <laughs> law school like hypotheticals at you. But uh, as we mentioned off tape, you've been very upfront about your history. So there's not much to dig in. Whereas with some of the other candidates, it's been uh, this portion of the interview has been kind of an expedition into people's pasts, which has um, I think it's great to have everything out there. But um Something that we discussed in our first interview was actually about your position on women's choice. And unfortunately, it keeps coming up because I think you've been very clear that you're pro-choice. But I think the confusion actually stems from the United Methodist Church on a national level uh, backing away from its support of Roe v. Wade. So I, I just wanted you to take this opportunity to maybe explain that more because I think they voted to uh, move away from a resolution that they had, that they were actually one of the religious organizations that supported Roe v. Wade. And is is there a potential for the church for which you are a deacon uh, to move away from that pro-choice stance? I think what would happen. Now, there are conservative factions in our church like every church. So there are people, a part of our church, a large significant part of the United Methodist Church is, is from Africa. And so there are some very conservative views on the international and national level from certain parts of the country. Now, New York Annual Conference has been the most liberal conference in the country, and we have been supportive of allowing gay ministers to have their ordination, whereas other parts of the country have not. And we have always, the discipline has always said that a woman's right to choose is paramount. Now, if someone were to come in and say, no, that's not the case, I think it would divide the church. I think the church would split up, and I think you'd have a church in the Northeast and something down South and something in the Midwest and something on the East Coast and the West Coast. So that's what I think would happen if that would, if that would ever take place because that would not abide. 
uh, I, the people in my church would not allow that to take place. So you've done all this work for the community, but one of the functions of Congress is also to act as a check on uh, foreign policy that the U.S. has. And that's something that some of your fellow candidates have a little bit more experience than you might. Um, while you've been doing this great work for the community, uh, what, from your experience, will help you in crafting your own foreign policy decisions um, if you were to become congressman? Well. I will tell you that I'm against preemptive wars. I'm against going to war in places that have not attacked us. Uh, I believe that police powers is something that have to be used with restraint. Congress gave up its authority to decide whether to go to war or not back in after 2011, I think it was September 14th, when they gave the authorization to use force to George Bush. And that's the same authorization that is still in place. Congress needs to change that. Congress needs to go back to the act that was made in 1974 where it controlled foreign wars. And after 60 days, the executive department branch had to come in and explain why there would be any further need for military involvement in anything. So we need to go back to that. And we need to have some restraint on this administration, which I don't trust. And I believe that Congress has to retake its war powers and, and control what's going on in our world. We have to go back to diplomacy. And I think that that's clear. Uh, the war in Iraq was unjust. Uh, most of the wars that we've been involved in since the Second World War have been unjust. The Vietnam War, which was something that was formative in my life with the peace movement and the anti-war movement, that was an unjust war. We need to stop going into unjust wars. And that's something that I believe in strongly. And how will you kind of craft your foreign policy decisions? For example, there's a crisis in um, Burma right now. There's uh, This administration has taken a very d dramatic position on Israel. So for those, using those two kind of uh, incidents as an example, um, how do you plan to get all of the information you need? For example, a vote came up in uh, Congress last year to recognize you know, the Rohingya crisis and that has led to an influx of, of refugees in Bangladesh. So how do you plan to make sure you have the right advisors for those issues that, uh, again, may not touch us here in Ulster County or in your work day to day? We need to go back to using diplomacy and we need to go back to actually having allies which can depend on and not throwing our allies under the bus by not paying attention to them or, or, or thinking we can go it alone. So when you want to create something like the Rohingya situation and create support for a group that is, is maybe the victims of, of an attempted genocide right now, you need the collective support of all the countries around them. We are not working on that level. We don't, I was just listening, we don't even have an ambassador to uh, South Korea right now. We don't have the head of uh, Asia right now in our diplomatic corps. We need all those in place to, to use all our diplomatic efforts to control a government that's going out of control. So I think we need to use diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. Now, with Israel, uh, and I've talked a lot about this, the, the fact that Donald Trump decided to move forward with declaring Jerusalem the, the capital of Israel, it was not his place to do that. Uh, everyone I've talked to that's been involved in trying to 
arrive at a peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, has said it has to come between those two. And Donald Trump dropping down in the middle of nowhere and deciding this has closed the door for the Palestinians. It doesn't need to be closed yet, right? Part of the process, part of any negotiation for peace is a back and forth and getting to the right place. Jerusalem was part of that. So now that it's been foreclosed, at least East Jerusalem is nothing that that uh, the Trump administration has recognized, you put an impediment to where the Palestinians may not even start to dialogue. And that's not a good thing. So once again, diplomacy needs tact, needs strategic thought, needs preparation, needs careful thought. And all those things are not being done right now with the Trump administration. His decision now to go and talk to Kim Jong-un is another mistake. It's something that he's put himself in a bad position. He's weakened our country. This was something that gave, gave North Korea exactly what it's wanted for the last two decades without any preparedness as to what's going to happen at those talks. So the United States, the denuclearization issue is something, of course, we all want. But they might be thinking, we're both going to denuclearize. And that's not going to happen. So all of a sudden, you have egg on your face. You have Donald Trump with egg on his face. And how does he react? That's a scary thought. So once again, jumping in without preparing, without knowing, without thoughtful consideration, without diplomacy is a bad practice. Sure. And I'm in total agreement over here. Something that John Fazel actually came out with this week is that he is against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which is a Palestinian-led movement. It encourages businesses to make sure that the Israeli occupation and annexation of Palestine doesn't keep happening. Do you have a position on that movement? I know Kirsten Gillibrand actually surprisingly is for that movement, but John Fazel and definitely this administration is cutting off ties to businesses that may support that movement. So the I have to say, I'm not sure about that movement. I don't know enough about it to see if it's targeted. The little information I hear is that it might have some effect, but it also might have some deleterious effect on Palestinians because places that are, are restricted, I, some manufacturers in, in Israel that are targeted actually use primarily Palestinian workers. And so it's a little more complicated. I'd, I'd wouldn't like to just make a general statement that I could say one way or the other, whether it's effective or is a good idea. Sure. And we've been talking a lot about foreign policy for the past few questions. And something that came about, I think, with the Iraq war and with the the Bush administration was this increased surveillance on uh, citizens. We saw the Patriot Act, which targeted uh, definitely Muslims. And you know, it's it's definitely continued, and we've saw we've seen in the past few years we've had uh, whistleblowers who have come out and kind of identified what the national security apparatus is actually up to, and even in our own primary, we've seen that government is actually contracting with companies to uh, kind of keep tabs on the citizens. So I was wondering what your position is on um, kind of the United. States and its relationship to becoming a surveillance state? I think it's a very dangerous thing. I, I just heard it was on NPR the other day, uh, somebody talking about what can be found in your computer and what these internet providers have and the knowledge they have about you. 
and they can actually go back and see every place you went to on the internet, find what what paper you were looking at or what picture you were looking at or what article you were looking at, and they can retrace just about everything you've done on the internet. Now, that was something that the Obama administration made a rule and said, you can't use this information. And within 60 days of Trump taking over, they undid that rule. That is a scary thing. So now you've got internet providers with all the information about your private activities, private life, private searches, private communications. That's just one example of the surveillance that's out there for us. It should not be used. It should not be used. It's a privacy issue to me. Unless you protect the privacy of people, there's no lines that can be drawn anymore. And if that information can go out there and target people because they have a certain belief, a certain political belief, that they're, they're promoting a certain policy that they think is important and people can target them for that, that's totally wrong. We have now a six-way race. And I think in the primary between Zephyr and Yandick, which had the benefit of having the Democratic primary contenders at the top of the ballot, um, there were only about 20,000 voters who came out for the primary. So there's a potential that this primary could be won by approximately 3,000 votes if we even have the same turnout as we did in the presidential year, which... Uh, you know, it remains to be seen. We could have we could have something like Texas, where there was this explosion in turnout uh, last week for the primary there. Um, but even if we match the turnout there, it it could be a race that's won by less than ten thousand votes. Um, we're now in petitioning season, so we can in around mid-April we'll kind of know how many signatures everyone has had. Have you put any thought into? Um, what might happen if, you know, you're somewhere in the middle and there there have been some uh, some forces at play in this primary. Um, you know, we know that the DCCC may be involved. Uh, there's a lot of corporate money here. We have kind of the some of the most highest funded campaigns with, uh, I think, three or f three candidates that are over a million dollars. Uh, which is, I know you speak a lot about campaign finance reform, but um, have you given any thought to what might happen if, um, you know, you make the petition, but it seems like one of these candidates that's going to be easily attacked as a carpetbagger, which we've also talked about, um, is in a position to win it? We can't stop them because of the amount of money from being in a position to win it, but what we can do is win it with grassroots organization our campaign right now has 478 volunteers. We have 200 people out petitioning since Wednesday, except I don't think we had that many out during the <laughs> snowstorm. But other than that, we have a really dedicated group of volunteers. So we see this as a grassroots race, and we have the advantage there. We have more volunteers, more people who know us. My, my family and I, my wife here, who taught in school and and I, with my involvement in the community, we have thousands of roots in the community, and we're spreading out as we speak. Uh, we're doing well in places like Otsego County and Sullivan County, Schoharie and Delaware, and we're trying to move into Dutchess and Columbia and Rensselaer. And so all that's in progress right now, and we're making great strides. Now, I just want to point out one thing about uh, the people who say that they haven't gotten any corporate money. Uh, 
of course they didn't get any corporate money because you can't take money from a corporation. So people get up and say, I haven't taken it. Well, you can't. I've only taken it from individuals, but where are those individuals from? Are they from corporations? Are they from corporate law firms? Are they from healthcare corporations? Are they from interests that have a certain policy that they want to see happen out of this election? That's what the question needs to be, not whether you've taken money from corporations. So I'm not one of those people. I'm not taking money from hedge fund managers. I'm not taking money from the healthcare industry. I'm not taking money from anybody except somebody who believes in the policies and the platform that we have. And me as a candidate as being somebody of integrity and somebody they can trust and count on to be a good congressman. So I know that's kind of the answer to the question that I usually ask to my candidates, like what differentiates you from the other candidates? But there are two other candidates that are not getting a ton of money from corporate interests. So uh, in addition to what your answer just was, how do you differentiate yourself from, you know, the other two kind of under... I don't like to use the term, but underdog candidates in terms of funding. I'm right. not talking volunteers, right. obviously. There's, there's only one other candidate that hasn't taken money like that, and that's Jeff Beals. Uh, the other candidate, if you check, you will find that hedge fund managers and Wall Street investors and people connected with certain uh, political patrons have contributed to him. So what I say is, uh, between Jeff and I, the difference is basically what I've done in the community. Uh, if you want to look at what I, what I stand for, uh, it's one thing for what I'm saying right now, and, and I hope you believe what I'm saying right now, but you don't just have to rely on believing me that I've come to this point of view in the last six months when I ran for Congress. I've worked for all these principles for the last four decades during my career. So that's the difference. I'm not somebody who's now speaking of taking on corporations and corporate abuse. I've done that. I'm not just now speaking about supporting women's rights. I've done that for decades. I've supported women who have been abused through the, through the uh, women's shelter and given hundreds of hours pro bono time to support them, as long as work, uh, working for people who have been subject to discrimination and harassment and worse in the workplace. So those are things that I've done. I have had that experience. I've represented people who've, who've suffered that harm, and I've, I've won for them. I've, I've got them justice. And so when I go to Congress, I'm going to continue to fight for justice for people. Marlene was just talking about how Parkland has kind of invigorated our youth. It's arising out of something very negative. And when I was listening back to our last interview, it was right after Las Vegas. And mm. I did ask you about gun control, and that's why I don't have it mm. in one of my questions now. And it's it's so sad that now you're here again after another mass shooting. But I think I could say that for, for every candidate. Um, but some, something that I saw this week on, um, on social media was a student from SUNY New Paltz who said that none of the Democratic candidates really spoke to him and his peers have not been following the primary and he's, he's not impressed by anyone because he feels that they're all kind of so far from the reality that students here are facing. And I think that your support for the community is beyond question, but you've also, you know, been very fortunate to attain personal wealth and you've been able to loan yourself um, money for campaigning. And that's not an opportunity that a lot of people have. And a lot of people in younger people are facing, you know, mounting student debt and 
all of these, you know, the gun crisis and the opioid crisis. So how do you plan to reach, you know, that group of voters that A, doesn't even come out to vote usually, and B, is feeling like more forgotten than ever and has and doesn't come out to vote in this community for sure. Right. Well, we just recently hired a liaison to the students, and uh, he's a student uh, over at Marist College. Uh, Andrew Zisk, I think, uh, Zink, I'm sorry, you, you, you probably know of him. He ran for the legislature sure. here in the county. And so I was over at New Pulse last week, actually, speaking to the young Democrats. I was over at Bard speaking to the young Democrats at Bard. I'm going over to Oneonta to speak to the young Democrats there. We have interns at a number of colleges, and we're, we're trying to, once again, bring back the, the belief in, and understanding of students that our political system can work, that I think a lot of them have lost faith in that. They see that both parties are kind of the same. They put us all in the same bag, and, and we can convince them otherwise. I, I think what they want is somebody they can really believe in. Uh, part of what I've found when I go to speak to, to students is that when I talk about what I've actually done, such as working out west with the Lakota Sioux, that that's something that really gets their interest. They say, wow, wow, you did that. How'd you do that? How'd you get involved in that? How could I get involved in something like that? Uh, AmeriCorps is out there, and people have a, a connection with you know, national service and doing that kind of work. So I I think it's something that we can reach students, and we need to, and we need to energize them, and we need to mobilize them. Uh, They're going to be important in this election. And we have a lot of universities, a lot of colleges, a lot of community colleges. We need to talk to all of them, and we need to get them motivated. Sure, agreed. And you just mentioned AmeriCorps, and my cousin actually did a program that was supported by AmeriCorps. And one of the issues that comes up with these public service programs is that they're so underfunded that she actually qualified for food stamps in doing that program. So how can we make sure these programs are actually funded to a point where you've just graduated from college? You know, sometimes the folks that are doing these programs come out of, you know, the best colleges in the country and they have, you know, six figure debt. Uh, Do you have any plans specifically for the programs that you are involved in with national service to make sure that, you know, you're not you, you look at your parents and they're not happy that you're on food stamps right. and you just finished college. Right. I, I will tell you that when I went into the VISTA program, I was, I was an attorney. I had passed the bar. I was able to earn a good living, but I chose to earn $341 a month. And what they did there was they decided that you need to live at, at the uh, poverty rate. They wanted you to experience the same thing that the people you're going to be working for are experiencing. Now, I'm not clear that that's a good idea. I think that, and I was fortunate that I was married and my wife could get at least a job that that added to the mix and we were able to get an apartment and to put food on the table without going on food stamps. But no, I don't think people should have to go on food stamps when they volunteer their time. As you say, there are people who are really highly qualified, highly motivated, want to do national service. Let's certainly provide for an adequate uh, amount of food and housing and, and a safe place to be. And, but let's encourage that kind of national service. Sure. And uh, something that has um, been in the news kind of unfortunately lately is the Supreme Court just decision on Janus and um, also the labor movement where I, I know your wife was uh, 
was or is is a teacher was a teacher and we saw the this teacher strike in West Virginia where they finally were able to get a five percent increase and we also are seeing kind of rumblings of a potential teacher strike in Oklahoma now um and I wanted to get, I know you're very pro-labor, but something that comes up, um, and we're seeing this actually in New Jersey now, that um, one of the strong labor unions is actually the police union. Mm. And when you're also simultaneously champion kind of reform for our police departments, uh, how do you intend to balance those like two aspects of the labor union, labor movement that uh, you might want to get support from? Well, starting off with, yes, I'm a big supporter of the labor movement. I think the labor movement is what made the middle class so strong in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think it's been a Republican attack on labor unions, especially the public labor unions in the last few decades that has hurt our country. And it's continuing to hurt our country. If if we worry about this income inequality, and if, if we want to figure out where that's coming from, you can look directly at the fact that we're down to maybe a third of the members, the number of members who are unions in our country versus what they were in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's a big impact. Unions give benefits. Unions give living wages, fair wages, fair opportunity. We need to get back to that. So I want to support that wherever that is. Dealing with police misconduct, wherever that might be, uh, that's a different issue. Uh, certainly, I want everybody, who's whether you're a teacher or a fireman, or a policeman to have a, a, a good living wage, benefits, security, retirement. All those are wonderful things. We want to continue that. We want to get the best people in those jobs. But at the same time, there's a, there's a level of responsibility, a, republic, a public responsibility that you have that you have to meet. And that's part of a community dialogue that you have to have. And I think that if you do have that, if we can get together, I know recently two policemen from the Kingston police department went to undoing racism that that weekend long event where they get together with a group of 20 or 30 individuals from all throughout the community and they talk about the the trouble with racial bias and implicit bias and how that affects all of us and let each side hear how the other perceives that and when you come out the other side of that you're transformed you now have a an understanding you never had before that's the kind of work we need to do with our police departments and with our black community. Sure. And one last question, and we're going to move things around so you end on your really nice <laughs> statement. But um, what I'm seeing this week, because we kind of track John Fazzo like I've never tracked anyone before <laughs> on the show, but uh, he, I think he's doing a little bit of pivoting, that he's pivoting to the center because he sees what's happening. He sees this uh, race coming up. Um, he just got rated with a 34% uh, rating for being in favor of environmental protection. So there was actually a vote this week um, where it would prevent coal mining waste from being released into the air. So he voted for a bill that allowed it in the streams, but this week he voted against a bill that would allow would prevent waste in the air. It's still passed anyway, and I know they trade votes, but he's going to use these more moderate votes. He's going to vote. He's going to use his vote of no on the tax bill to present himself as a moderate. So how will you make sure he doesn't do this? 
um, you know, during the election when when you're kind of vying from for this group that might might change from FASO to potentially you. So the only vote that they really needed him to vote on was to take down the Affordable Care Act. And how did he vote then? He voted to harm our community by taking away our health care. On every other vote, they didn't need his vote. On every other vote, they got the law, the legislation passed every time. So he got a pass. So that means nothing to me. All it means is that you take care of your party whenever you need to, and when you don't have to, you can pretend to be moderate. You, you can't be an environmentalist on this issue and not on that issue. That's hypocrisy. That's called hypocrisy. You can call him out on that hypocrisy. He's willing to harm us. He's willing to, every time he votes, by the way, on a Wall Street regulation, he goes for Wall Street. He never goes for Main Street, not once. That's 100%. So John Faso has a lot to answer for, and we won't let him off the hook. You've been listening to Spotlight 19. This is Justin Tracy signing off. We'll be back next week with our Tiny Town Hall series featuring Antonio Delgado. Until then, cheers, tintara, tata. See you next week. And keep the faith.